travellers and semi-isolationists and welcome to podcast 23 in our series You Should Have Been There with me Mick Webb and me Simon Calder and delighted to be talking today about great expeditions because we are living in a time when simply a trip to the shops can feel like uh, something that you have to plan for and yearn for and really want to do. And, of course, um, uh, you might have other adventures in mind, such as a trip to County Durham and even the uh, uh, day trip to beautiful Barnard Castle. Have you been there, by the way? I have. It's a beautiful place. Now, the castle itself is a bit of a kind of uh, wrecked hulk of a castle. It's not particularly atmospheric or beautiful. But what you have got there is the Bose Museum, created by a Londoner who made a fortune from the Durham coalfields, which were a time were the richest in the world. And he lived there with his um, beautiful French actress wife. And they created it in the style of a proper French chateau that you would um, expect to find maybe gracing the Loire. Well, I think it's a shame that Mr Cummings didn't actually um, get to see that, although I'm sure he has done on previous uh, expeditions. Now, just before we go a bit deeper into the idea of an expedition and what makes an expedition different from any other kind of uh, journey or trip, I would like to ask you about how things are going in the travel business, because I have uh, noticed while sitting here mostly locked in my uh, uh, room that many more aircraft are uh, beginning to fly past uh, and indeed sometimes the sound of the aircraft even drowns out the noise of the parakeets. Oh, well, how, how very distressing or indeed if you uh, enjoy air travel and like the sound of the world getting back together um, then that's a, a, uh, a good thing. Well yes things are stepping up gradually. Croatia is already saying yeah come on holiday here we need an accommodation booking. On Wednesday June the 3rd Italy uh, is is really open for business, and then gradually we'll see across Europe almost the um, the domino effect trickling down um, as far as Greece, where they may well have some reservations about um, who they let in, and that I'm afraid means us, the British. Um, but of course, hanging over all of this is a couple of things: the Foreign Office still hasn't changed its warning against all but essential travel abroad, and then about a week from now quarantine for the first time will be introduced in the UK for people who simply want to um, go on holiday. Now last week you mentioned uh, a very uh, underhand and somewhat expensive dodge for getting round this kind of thing which was called the uh, Dublin dodge. I think we could probably add to that list the Durham dodge. I just wondered if any more uh, cunning plans have hatched since the announcement... I've been going through the great long list of exemptions from the quarantine, which the Home Office has, has published. Now, many of them are self-evident. You're a Eurotunnel or a Eurostar train driver. You need to be able to drive your train between the U France and the UK without um, then spending two weeks indoors. Um, but others are really quite weird. I, I've basically sent to the Home Office, and I haven't yet heard from them, a whole list of categories where I think really quite ordinary jobs could get you exemption. So being a bus driver, being a dentist, an engineer for a mobile phone company, an engineer working for the BBC or indeed a police officer, you do not need to be travelling in connection with your work. I think they just have the idea that they want all these people back at base 
at their place of work and they um, don't require them to quarantine. But as I stress, I haven't yet found that out and um, do not take my word for it or indeed anything, as I know you've learned to your, to your cost. <laughs> um, did you find anything while you were going through the list of exemptions that anything that might apply to us? Not that I have any intention of uh, trying to get round these rules because, as you know, I'm all in favour of uh, restrictions that limit the spread of the virus. Um, but uh, do you, any, any chance? Yeah, I, I think I can, I can get you possibly off. If you are, and in the context of this podcast, you certainly are, um, a person who is engaged in urgent or essential work on electronic communications networks. I'd say you just about qualify for that. <laughs> I, I look forward to your account of how the um, uh, UK Border Force receive your excuse. Let's get on to the um, the matter at hand, which is great expeditions. And I wonder what actually makes an expedition different from um, any other trip. I mean, you sort of think first off that it's something to do with the gravity, the seriousness of the uh, enterprise. But then I realised that actually... I could have said in pre-lockdown days, oh, I'm just going on a shopping expedition to Oxford Street and nobody would have said, you idiot, what do you mean expedition? Are you taking a compass, some rope and <laughs> and um, a hip flask with you? So that devalues the brand somewhat, doesn't it? Therefore, um, in order to make something actually not much different from a holiday or a trip, I'm saying I'm going on an expedition to Benidorm in a couple of months' time. Do you, th do you think that holds water? Well, look, I would say that there is, there is a, another hurdle to clear, which is the, the stuff that you have to take. So I would say anything up to and including a ski holiday, which you and I have both done, but not together... That's that's still a holiday. Um, it's it's where you have to go beyond the ordinary that you would pack for a just a routine trip. And maybe just just a compass shows that you're a slightly more serious expeditioner than um, the, the these lightweight um, holiday makers. Although of course everybody maybe now these days does have a compass on their mobile phone. So that that particular uh, stipulation no longer counts. Um, what do you think? Well, first of all, I think the compasses on mobile phones are actually notoriously uh, inaccurate. So I would actually rule out anybody who relied entirely on a mobile phone compass for their jungle trek. And I'd like to throw a couple more things into the mix. I think that an exploration suggests a much greater investment. It could be an investment of time, <laughs> but uh, I also think that... Uh, these days, and uh, that um, money and sponsorship uh, it may be quite important. So actually, you couldn't really call yourself an expedition unless you were walking across a desert or clambering up a mountain with a whole load of um, branded pieces of equipment about your person. I don't know, is, is that just cynical? Oh no, I, I think we've seen in the past few years um, the idea that celebrities will get involved in epic trips, great expeditions um, that actually not everybody would see quite like that. So a very traditional now one is um, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, the highest mountain, of course, in Africa. Now, I've not been able to do it so far. I understand it's a bit of a slog. And clearly, if you have issues with altitude, then that's going to be inconvenient. But you're not going to be the first person there. 
And while it is an impressive feat of endurance, um, I'm not sure that it ticks any of the boxes. And I also get slightly worried, slightly worried with um, uh, great solo expeditions where it appears that actually um, there's uh, quite a lot of media involvement and to the extent that you might even find, if you're lucky, that a, a, a friendly newspaper sends a helicopter to go and rescue you, which um, I would find uh, very convenient in some of the some of the places I've ended up. <laughs> well, maybe we should tack that on to the end of our list of what makes an absolutely essential parts of the definition um so are we counting we're discounting the helicopter are we and um oh no i don't you think a good idea i think that that rather seals it doesn't it when a very expensive two thousand dollar an hour machine um has to be uh, dispatched in your direction that shows that not only have you been on a, an expedition you've been on an expedition which has gone slightly wrong which of course is the kind that we all love <laughs> Okay, I've got another criterion here, or they may be even criteria, which is you really should have some sort of uh, goal for this other than just going because other people have done it or because it's there. Do you see what I mean? You need to actually be discovering something. So that means that it has some kind of uh, uh, loftier purpose, a sort of scientific purpose or some way of um, improving our knowledge of the world. Yes, a lofty purpose indeed. It would be a, a very, uh, very good um, way to put it. And of course, many of the most magnificent 19th century and maybe early 20th century expeditions have been just that. They have been voyages of discovery um, where, frankly, you can do all the planning you like, but um, you know, uh, that's not necessarily going to do you any good. Yeah, no, that's very true. And you're sort of really seriously going out into the unknown. But anyway, maybe if we thought about some historical expeditions that we particularly favoured, maybe this would help to nail it down a bit. Well, my greatest expedition was, of course, one which um, failed. And this was Shackleton's attempt in 1914 onwards to uh, cross the Antarctic after, of course, poor old um, Captain Scott had been beaten to the South Pole by uh, a, a Norwegian explorer. The British thought, right, we can we can actually cross Antarctica and that will be an even greater achievement. And um, Shackleton got some sponsorship from a, a jute magnate called James Caird. So he took his men to South Georgia. Um, they then started off. They then inevitably, in the endurance, got stuck in ice. They had to abandon the uh, the ship because it was breaking up. Um, they camped on an ice. And then they found that they had this um, this boat, the James Caird, fortunately, um, a tiny little uh, 20-foot lifeboat. And um, he and five companions uh, sailed for hundreds of miles back to South Georgia. They landed on the wrong side of the island. Um, Shackleton then had to, with a couple of his men, cross an incredibly difficult range of mountains, um, having just effectively sailed for, for two weeks with almost no food or provisions. Um, and they managed to make it to uh, uh, to civilization. They got uh, got help and effectively they went and rescued everybody. It was quite extraordinary. And I think the, the endurance was 
everything that a good expedition should have, including um, uh, magnificent salvation. Sorry, they failed to... What did they actually... So this expedition completely failed. It didn't even really get beyond first base of, of its aim to cross Antarctica, and yet it became absolutely celebrated as an extraordinary triumph of um, endurance in every sense. Well, uh, funnily enough, my favourite expedition is also, I suppose, a glorious failure. And although I was considering a few others as um, contenders for great historical expedition, the greatest of all, uh, Tenzing and Hillary's conquest of Everest, Neil Armstrong's giant leap, Christopher Columbus um, discovering the new world when actually he thought he was discovering something else, and, um, and of course Amelia Earhart flying the Atlantic on her own. But I have actually gone for Mungo Park's um, journeys in Africa. He was active at the end of the 18th century, um, and he was a Scottish explorer of West Africa, uh, trained as a doctor, actually, at, at Edinburgh. And he became obsessed with the idea of, of mapping one of uh, West Africa's huge rivers, the River Niger, to its source and discovering how it connected with the River Congo. And this was one of the great mysteries of uh, African geography, uh, which was um, second only to the mystery of where the Nile had its source. Uh, and anyway, he devoted uh, years and indeed lost his life uh, in his quest. And uh, he made two voyages uh, to, to the Gambia, where he started his expeditions. And the first one in uh, 1795 um, was sort of semi-successful, and at least he came back from it alive. And he wrote an incredibly successful book, which was entitled... Travels in the Interior Districts of Africa, 1797. And it was a diary of his experiences uh, and of the nature and wildlife he encountered. But he also commented on things that he saw, including the um, differences and similarities between Europeans and Africans. And, and he actually noted that although there were some obvious physical differences, he made the point that as humans, we are essentially the same, which I think was possibly uh, rather a revolutionary concept at the time. Anyway, I do actually have a very short extract from this book, which is when he set off from the relative comfort of the Gambia into the interior. And uh, this is what he took with him. I was furnished with a horse for myself. A small but very hardy and spirited beast which cost me to the value of seven pounds ten shillings and two asses for my interpreter and servant. My baggage was light, consisting chiefly of provisions for two days, a small assortment of beads, amber and tobacco for the purchase of a fresh supply as I proceeded because uh, beads, amber and tobacco functioned as, as currency a few changes of linen and other necessary apparel, an umbrella, a pocket sextant, a magnetic compass and a thermometer, together with two fowling pieces, two pair of pistols and some other small articles. And, and look, that sounds that sounds as though it's most certainly passed the equipment test. Uh, I, I would say uh, beads, amber and tobacco already. He's, um, he's qualified for um, a great expedition. And I like the idea of the thermometer, which somehow brings him right up to date. 
<laughs> it certainly does. Um, and look, the, the other thing is a number of people who are familiar with uh, uh, parts of West Africa may think, why was he starting in the Gambia when uh, clearly the, the uh, Niger River kind of goes through Timbuktu and then um, uh, goes southeast from there uh, through Niger itself and then Nigeria um, flowing out halfway along that coastline. And that is because I think uh, the Niger has the most preposterous course of any river. So uh, good for for him and good for anybody who can um, uh, follow in his, um, his, his horse steps or indeed his... Uh, servants ass steps if i can say that you certainly can and i think quite a lot of canoeing was involved as well and uh, uh, maybe that description of how complicated the river's journey was explains why it um, took him so long to um, get only two-thirds of the way down it uh, and uh, indeed that was where he met his end on his second expedition um, when he was ambushed shot at by some local people who he obviously hadn't managed to um, uh, pay off with beads, amber or tobacco, uh, and was apparently drowned. Although I think actually how he met his end is uncertain. And of course, could be the possible subject of a great expedition if you um, uh, want to join me in it at some point in the future. I, I certainly will do, and we will we will take that those beads, that amber, that tobacco, and um, thermometer, of course, um, and and um, probably some some slightly more technological uh, toys as well to um, reduce the risk that we um, we meet the same unfortunate end. Um, and I, just one thing I need to know: I'm sure you don't know the answer, but some of our uh, lovely listeners may. Is there actually a park called Mungo Park? <laughs> Um, I I don't know, but uh, it does sound as though there should be a band as well. Uh, Yes, Mungo Park and the provisions, I would say. (laughs) Uh, And, um, okay, if you want, of course, to uh, send us any of your uh, uh, ideas for for band names um, involving great explorers, um, you can leave a message for us at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. But look, Mick, what about our own efforts do they count as expeditions and just to um, let some light in on these i think we first if i got this right traveled together in 1998 um in a, a series actually for bbc radio 4 called bridging the gap and the idea was that you and i would travel across from colombia across the darien gap at probably uh, one of the times when it was at its most lethal in terms of the uh, narco-terrorists and general ne'er-do-wells who were um, infesting that part of uh, of Latin America. Um, does, does it count, do you think? Well, I think if if you're going to allow Shackleton's heroic failure into the list of great expeditions, I think this one might take its place alongside that as a heroic failure because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> due to the the dangers which you've um, uh, really nicely listed um we were not allowed to actually 
do the journey which we were intending to do, which was right through this roadless, disease-infested, 80-odd-kilometre stretch of jungle between Panama and Colombia. The Colombian military wouldn't allow us to do it, presumably because they didn't want to have to send a very expensive helicopter in to try and rescue us. Um, So we had to find a way of uh, going round the outside, as it were. And that in itself was an incredibly interesting and uh, difficult job because we had to make it up as we went along, didn't we? And just meeting uh, local people. And we'd also sought guidance on what kind of equipment we should take from an expert in in jungle survival with the Army's Pathfinder platoon, who was called Corporal Ray Wright, and a splendid fellow he was. And he gave us some quite worrying advice. What we actually do in the Army, what we always take is a shotgun. A shotgun stops most things. Certainly it'll stop a Jaguar, certainly it'll stop a snake. That is definitely something that you will need. Even if you miss, it's a very big deterrent, the bang it gives off. And uh, I'm sure a Jaguar won't have anything to do with you after that. I must say, seriously, the prospect of taking a gun rather terrifies me. Um, What what about um, some sort of knife? What we also carry is a machete, something that you definitely need to keep on you. The machete is not actually used for, like, you know, chopping people's heads off or anything like that. What it's actually used for is a survival instrument. We keep it on on ourselves at all times. That allows us then to cut down bamboo, things like that, and we can make a shelter. Oh, yes, I remember that. And, uh, of course, no machete is any use unless it is properly sharp. And would you believe that in Medellin, in those days, um, rather less placid than it was, there was an entire street of um, knife-sharpening shops. And I, I seem to recall it cost about four times more to actually sharpen the knife than the um, original uh, uh, weapon or um, defensive aid or essential companion had done in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I can't remember the cost now. Um, But uh, I did, and this is also, I think, quite extraordinary. I managed to bring back my machete um, and, and, and I have it here. How on earth you could ever travel with a machete that had been sharpened. Oh, well, there we go. And it's it's kind of, it's seen a bit of use. Um, uh, and I suppose what this is all suggesting to me is that actually um, there are many different kinds of expedition. And of course, we haven't even mentioned um, military expeditions. But in fact, the thing that makes an expedition is buying some interesting and possibly weird kit in order to um, achieve it. And this is actually the only one definition we really need. Yes, and indeed, on one great expedition, which I seem to have uh, not taken with you, but indeed with my friends Graham and Gina, I spent a whole month um, buying all kinds of odd things. Um, Let me put this in context. The idea was to climb Aconcagua, uh, the highest mountain outside the Himalayas. It's... um, almost 7,000 metres high, Uh, so it's a serious um, endeavour and it requires serious stuff. Um, And because Graham and Gina had already flown away to Latin America, I was left behind to acquire all the stuff which included, uh, for example, absolutely vile mountain house meals um, that they uh, uh, are freeze-dried and the idea is that um, you, you... just hack some ice from somewhere, melt it, and then uh, you can you can then um, 
survive for another day by the way they're no longer available but there is another one called summit to eat um, but of course you do have to have uh, for a serious mountain expedition you need all kinds of things specifically including permission and that generally means um, throwing hundreds of dollars in the direction of the um, Argentinian authorities uh, but we we made it and um, very pleasing it was too um, and very sad also because unlike us uh, we didn't have any fixed plans for returning and there were there were dozens of people who uh, we got caught by some bad weather no surprise if you're at 6,000 meters you're going to be and and time and again expeditions were turned round these were commercial ones as opposed to us um, amateurs where they booked their flights and even though they were only maybe a day and a half away from the summit they had to um, uh, turn around so um, yes not not having um, too many fixed plans I think is another good uh, side to an expedition at least not when you hope to finish uh, I've got loads of questions but maybe I'll just limit myself to this one which is that there were three of you uh, on this expedition obviously um, two's company and three's a crowd but is that not the case when you're doing something like scaling a mighty mountain uh, I, I think it's definitely not the case you need somebody who is young and fit and healthy and that was um Gina um you need somebody who's very good at um climbing uh high mountains and that's uh, Graham because he's summited uh, Everest and you need someone to carry the dare I say it crap and that was my role I was just effectively um Mungo Park's ass um just carrying all this stuff up and um, indeed, because you can't leave anything on the mountain, carrying the um, human waste downwards again. Uh, <laughs> but then my uh, not my my role as as a chief carrier did not end there. When we got back down to um, base camp, they were heading off to Patagonia. So I found, and this is possibly the toughest thing of all, uh, myself trying to get on a transcontinental journey with more than my own body weight in luggage and furthermore not paying for it and I did just about um on public transport all the way although I did uh, finally I think um, when I came back to London City Airport of all places uh, I, I managed to get into the centre of London and then I just got into a cab and uh... but presumably you had um, dispensed with your um, bag or bags of um, of of human um, poo is that uh, yeah, yes, uh, they they were collected and inspected, and uh, and, and you know, effectively you would you would get an inspector of the bags, and the inspector would look at you and look at the contents, and tr in, in the light of what you've just done, work out whether there was enough there. Um, <laughs> it was uh, you know, a um, uh, you know, it's not not the sort of job that I I think many people would go into travel for, but I'm sure it's a stepping stone to something. <laughs> you see this is the sort of um gritty detail that often isn't included in um in the expedition diaries of the uh famous now in case we get carried away with um our own delusions of expeditionary importance or any feelings that we might be amongst the elite of explorers. Um, I have been uh, looking at a poem which I vaguely remembered as being extremely funny, written by 
Lewis Carroll uh, in the 19th century, um, which um, is called The Hunting of the Snark and often called a, uh, a nonsense poem. I actually think it is an absolutely brilliant satire on journeys of all kinds, expeditions in particular, maybe life, um, and certainly politics. So, well, the idea behind the poem is that there's this motley uh, crew of individuals who are on an expedition, it's a voyage uh, to start with, to try and find a mythical beast called a snark. The snark is not particularly dangerous uh, in its own right, but it has some relative which it's indistinguishable from called a boojum, which is incredibly dangerous. So there is a good bit of what the television companies would call jeopardy built into this. Um, if we do find the snark, will it be a boojum? And oh dear, what's going to happen? Anyway, the, um, the crew comprised of a whole bunch of extraordinary characters, uh, including a maker of bonnets and hoods, a barrister, and a broker, a billiard marker, and a beaver that paced on the deck or would sit making lace in the bow and had often, the bellman said, saved them from wrecks, though none of the sailors knew how. Anyway, there's also the bellman who is um, a uh, pompous individual whose actual qualifications for leading the expedition seem extremely dubious. The bellman himself they all praise to the skies, such a carriage, such ease and such grace, such solemnity too. One could see he was wise the moment one looked in his face. He had bought a large map representing the sea without the least vestige of land and the crew were much pleased when they found it to be a map they could all understand. What's the good of Mercator's North Poles and Equators, Tropic Zones and Meridian Lines? So the bellman would cry, and the crew would reply, they are merely conventional signs. Other maps are such shapes with their islands and capes, but we've got our brave captain to thank, so the crew would protest, that he's bought us the best, a perfect, an absolute blank. There you go, there's a route map for you. <laughs> It is. And look, anybody who wants to uh, read this wonderful poem by Lewis Carroll, and of course we won't reveal the ending, um, but you can find it in about two seconds online and from the uh, Poetry Foundation. And I love the beginning of Fit the Eighth. They sought it with thimbles. They sought it with care. They pursued it with forks and hope. And that's all you can do with any great expedition, I think. Anyway, uh, Thank you for bringing those to the uh, great expedition of uh, Podcast 23. And Podcast 24 in the series You Should Have Been There is um, actually, hopefully, the first cousin of great expeditions, which is assessing travel risks, or as I would call it, calibrating chance. And I'll even bring you my five top tips for maximising the chances of survival abroad. Uh, but for now, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Miguel. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.